Boss Uncaged is a weekly podcast that releases the origin stories of business owners and entrepreneurs as they become uncaged trailblazers. In each episode, our hosts, S.A. Grant and guests construct narrative accounts of their collective business journeys and growth strategies. Learn key success habits and how to stay motivated through failure, all while developing a boss uncaged mindset. Break out of your cage and welcome our host, S.A. Grant. Welcome, welcome back to Boss and Cage Podcast. So today we have a very interesting individual, and as she d- starts to tell her, tell us about her story and the countries that she's been to and the things that she's studied and who she became after developing all this different information, is this going to be very a fruitful and valuable episode. So I'm going to deem her the international IP boss. So Anita, the floor is yours. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit more about you and what we're talking about today? <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Uh, yeah, I like uh, the title. <laughs> um, well, uh, yeah, I've been in the in this trademark uh, field for 23 years, pretty much all my life. Uh, and um, like right, right now, I, I have my own company that I've been running for five years. But before that, I was working for other uh, law firms. Uh, and pretty much uh, I ended up in this field by accident. Mm-hmm. I was uh, looking for a job. And I was living, uh, I lived in Israel at that time. So I was looking for a job and I saw uh, an ad in the newspaper that like an American attorney was looking for uh, an IP paralegal. So I I didn't, at that time, like I was just studying English. I mean, my English was good, but I didn't know what paralegal was exactly. I didn't know what IP meant. And I knew that attorney was like the same as the lawyer. I, I Googled the word. So to me, it all looked very intriguing. So I applied for a job and I got it. Well, of course, I was an assistant first. I was working with this um, American lawyer, uh, like on trademarks, and he was teaching me like everything he knew. And it just like ended up to be my career. It was pure fluke and accident. Uh, But yeah, ever since that's what I've been doing. So nothing else really. I think it's definitely interesting. I mean, obviously, you started off in, in Moscow, and then you went from Moscow and yeah. school in UK. But when you went to school for UK, you you didn't go to school for anything related to what you're doing right now. So let's no, just talk about that. I, like, yeah, I studied economics, uh, and that ended up to be extremely boring because I didn't know like how I could apply myself. Yeah. What exactly I was going to do, like like to work as an economist, yeah. uh, and then I uh, changed. Uh, like accounting and I worked in a, in an audit uh, firm for two years but before I started working for uh in the trademark field but that was also extremely boring like both accounting and economics was extremely boring like numbers uh it's not my thing it's it's dry it's boring it's non-dynamic I mean at least for me for me uh yeah so for me that ended up to be the career that I uh, kind of pursued. Hmm. But yeah, I obviously it's not something I would have done by choice because it's a very narrow field and uh, it's just not something they teach you at universities. Uh, so I had no idea uh, what like intellectual property even meant. 
So, so how did how did you end up in Israel? Because I mean, obviously, you came from Moscow. You ended up in UK. You got a degree, and then one day you just decided, "Hey, I'm just going to move to Israel." Like, how how did that come to pass? Well, my my grandfather was a Jew, so uh, under the law of return, I could immigrate to Israel. And I just desperately wanted because after I finished my studies in the UK, I couldn't stay there, so I went back to Russia. But I never really liked it even before every, everything began. Uh, so I was desperately looking for ways to leave Russia legally because I didn't want to be an illegal immigrant. So Israel was a nice uh, country at that time. Uh, but very quickly after I uh, came to Israel, I understood that I, I wouldn't be able to leave there. It just the mentality, the heat, it just wasn't my thing. Uh, but I ended up living uh, for three years there before I uh, immigrated to Canada. Gotcha. So, so now you're in Canada. So, I mean, are you here f- to stay in Canada or are you thinking maybe that yeah. down the road you may end up somewhere else? But I mean, obviously you're kind of a world traveler and you have these different experiences globally, but why did you pick Canada of all the places to end up? Well, uh, honestly, uh, that was the only feasible choice uh, because it's not so easy to like emigrate to another country. So um, I could only immigrate to Australia, New Zealand and Canada. Uh, and Canada was the only like real uh, like way and quick one. Well, I mean, it took me three years mm-hmm. uh, to do that, but still uh, like all the other countries. I mean, I didn't want to. I, I spent some time in New Zealand before and I, I I didn't really I liked the country, but it's so far away and it's just so isolated. So I didn't want to be so far away. Um, but yeah, Canada is good. Like, yeah, yeah, I've been here for 18 years now, so it's a pretty yeah i think it's close to the us it's uh it had like um many places to travel it's very safe hmm. um and uh, i mean immigrants feel very welcoming here like that's what i didn't feel in israel i didn't feel like I, like i was at home hmm. and i was always told to go home so here i mean there are lots of immigrants so you don't feel that very cool. Very cool. So, I mean, even even in Canada, I mean, you had an opportunity to be mentored by someone that was pretty high profile. So you had an opportunity to be mentored by the Canadian um, Intellectual Property Office president. So how, oh, yeah. was that, how was that experience like being mentored by somebody of that caliber? Yeah, no, that was actually great because uh, like uh, once I came to Canada, I immediately found a job like in a, in a law firm. So working um like on trademarks, so in the trademark department. Uh, and I wanted to become a trademark agent. And to do that, you need to uh, be an apprentice for two years and you need to pass a very difficult exam. It's like a bar exam for lawyers, but only in the area of trademarks. Hmm. So you can only pass it after you've been an apprentice for two years. Uh, so I asked, uh, so Jane was my boss. So I asked her if I could do that. Uh, and first she made me go to the to like a local college to finish my paralegal studies there for two years. I had to patiently wait. Uh, and then um, I did my two year apprenticeship and then I took the exam. So yeah, I, I ended up, I think it took me five years um, to become a trademark agent, five or even six, not two. Yeah. Because like at that time, they didn't really allow um, assistants, paralegals um, to become uh, trademark agents and professionals, because that was like one of uh, ways how you can become a professional in a law firm without going to law school. Hmm. So you go and take an exam. Um, and if you pass it, you become a professional. So you become a trademark agent. So basically, you know, the staff member anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, but 
they didn't really encourage that at that time. And it was an, an extremely difficult exam. Like as far as I know, I was the only person, and I think I was the last person who was allowed to do that before they completely discontinued that. Um, but the exam was extremely difficult. Um, the pass rate is 25%. So you keep talking about how difficult the exam was, but I mean, based upon historical facts, I mean, didn't you get like the highest grade ever on that exam? Yeah, I overstudied. Mm. I was so paranoid because, uh, well, obviously the company allowed me uh, to do that and they even paid for my um, trip to McGill University uh, to, to take the course. So I was uh, very afraid that what if I fail the exam? So what I did, I ended up, uh, first of all, you couldn't even find the materials because there are no books. So I had to find the materials, ask other people, find them online, like uh, borrow some books from the library. And I um, developed a plan for myself for two years. Uh, and basically every day I did like like about two hours of study. And for two years I did that. And then I managed to get like past uh, exams for the past 10 years. And I just kind of did them. And then I timed myself and I like worked on errors. So it was an extremely thorough <laughs> exercise. Yeah, so with that, I mean, I couldn't really fail, but of course I, um, I didn't aim for the highest mark. I mean, that was again an accident. Uh, but I think it just happened because I studied for too much. I know that other people didn't study for so long. Uh, like we organized like a group, a study group. Uh, there were like four uh, four girls in my group. So everyone started to study like six months before the exam, maybe like a year. So of course I studied more than everyone else. Hmm. Um, so that's the reason. Sure. I guess you just have to be persistent. Yeah, and I would think that you're persistent you're a self-starter. So, like, my next question is, if you could define yourself in three to five words, what would those three to five words be? Oh, well, three to five words. Um, mommy, businesswoman, like to travel. Yeah, it, may, it may definitely makes sense. So, I just want to dive into, like, like we, we talked about trademarks before on this show, but, I mean, you have a, a particular niche that most people are not comprehensible in, and as far as international space, right? Because I mean, obviously, someone is, is, they understand U.S. They may understand the class, the classes, but does that still roll over into, let's say, for example, China or Australia or UK? Oh yeah, so yeah, so we basically uh, we register trademarks in about I would say fifteen countries, mm -hmm. uh, and our primary clients are based in Canada and they're based in the U.S. and I would say UK and Australia. Uh, so the English-speaking clients. Uh, and yes, I mean, trademarks are international in a sense that it's the process is very similar, but uh, each country has their own way of like registering the trademarks. So even though the trademark classes are like numbered the same, so they have the same numbers, like one to 45, like US, Canada and China, for example, they have their own ways of describing products and services in those classes. So in, in, in every country where we file, we work with the local attorney so that we don't you know, mess up, obviously. Um, and we adjust uh, the trademark uh, to make sure that it, it's suitable and it's acceptable and complies with the local laws. Um, yeah, but it's, uh, it's not copy paste, unfortunately. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, three, three exceptions are Canada, US and China. I mean, they all have like different ways of filing trademarks so let's just talk about like the general trademarks in general i think on your instagram account you had mm -hmm. this, this great example of dove and dove so you had dove chocolate and you have dove soap 
And mm-hmm. both of them are essentially trademarks and they're both owned by major corporations. Mm-hmm. So to kind of clarify that for, for like the average user, like how does that how does that happen? It's like how could someone have the same exact trademark for the same exact word? Yeah, because uh, what people don't really understand is that when you file a trademark, um, you don't own this word or like a, like a, a phrase for everything. You only own the word or the phrase or the logo uh, for the products that you listed in your trademark application. So you don't get the monopoly for everything under the sun uh, if you sell uh, soap and your tra- your trademark name is Dove. So you own Dove for soap, but you don't own it for chocolate because chocolate and soap are not found uh, side by side in stores and uh, they're likely to be confused. So it's unlikely that you're shopping for soap and then by accident you buy chocolate. So that's why, I mean, um, trademarks, even with the same name, they can coexist if the products are completely different. Uh, but to give an example, for example, um, you like you wouldn't be able to register Dove for candy because candy and chocolate are very similar and they can be found side by side uh, in a store. So in this case, um, you wouldn't be uh, able to register a similar trademark. But if, uh, if it's Dove for toys, yes, it's possible that somebody will be able to register because it's completely... Um, it's a different field. It's the product are completely unrelated. But soap, like if you, for example, uh, sell creams, then it's pretty close as well to soap. So maybe no. <laughs> but so- yeah, soap and chocolate are not really similar. They can't be confused. So, I mean, you've been doing this this for a long period of time, and then you guys have filed thousands of trademarks, and you've only been refused about 38. So that's a small percentage. So my next question is, like, out of those 38, like, like what was that worst-case scenario of the reasons why that particular trademark, without naming names, could not be filed? Yeah, I, 38. I think I last updated the timer about six months. So maybe, I would say, of course, it's not 38, maybe about 50. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, our... Well, failure rate, I mean, that's talking about Canada and U.S. Is, um, and Europe is pretty low uh, because we, we do a comprehensive trademark search. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some countries, we're filing blindly, like China, because the the um, the lag is really uh, long. So when you file a trademark, the database is not updated for six months. So mm-hmm. in China, our success rate is lower. It's about 70% of success and 30% of all trademarks are pretty much not registered. So in China, it's different. Uh, and just because we're filing blindly. Uh, but usually a trademark is refused for two reasons, um, mostly for two reasons. If there are similar trademarks that are already registered or filed before we filed ours, mm-hmm. uh, and the client decides to proceed, proceed regardless, maybe because they can change the name or uh, they like the name or they've been doing business for quite some time. Uh, or because uh, the trademark is descriptive of the products or generic. So when it's um, really like the name of the product. In this case, it's a very weak trademark and it's difficult to register. Mm-hmm. So this is another reason. Uh, but basically, those are the two main reasons. In all countries, it's very similar. So it's important to make sure that the trademark is unique and distinctive, not descriptive, like your, uh, like the name of your podcast Boston Cage it's very cool by the way it's very unique it's very um well it, it makes your like imagination go and you think okay what does it mean really so you have you're trying to imagine the picture in your head mm-hmm. because it's not there is no obvious uh, association with your trademark name 
Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think that gives us a good point because I actually own the trademark for Boston Cage. But when mm-hmm. filing for the trademark, we were filing for three classes. So we ended up getting class 25, which is essentially garments and clothes. Mm-hmm. Class 41, which is essentially educational, uh, mm-hmm. education, media, marketing, podcasting. And I forgot the other one. I think it was like business um, consulting. But, 35, maybe. Yeah. So and, and it was funny because, again, obviously the, the, the business consultant side, because of the word boss being part of the name, that got denied. So we had to kind of go back and forth. And it was like, okay, well, let's drop that class. And let's mm-hmm. just take the two classes that nobody else has access to. How often does that really happen? Or how, like, do people usually get discouraged when they get that letter back saying, hey, well, one of your classes are not going to work. And then they're just sitting there not knowing what to do next. Yeah, it's quite common when one of the words in a trademark is descriptive of the products or of the services. Uh, in this case, um, yeah, I see your trademark is registered in two classes right now, yeah. clothing and educational. Uh, but yeah, it's quite common when one of the classes, like in some countries like US and Canada, you can get a refusal um, for like a particular class. So let's say there may be a similar trademark um, for class 35, mm-hmm. but the other two classes are not a problem. Not a problem. So in this case, it's uh, sometimes you can submit an argument. Mm-hmm. So you can write a response um prepare an argument and try to get all three classes or all of them and then if you get a final refusal um then you have to delete the problematic class because otherwise you may end up with no trademark so it's best to get something rather than nothing yeah yeah and so what we end up doing is that we have two trademarks so our original trademark which is cerebral 360 that trademark already had 35 so i was like well we already have one trademark, so we can, we're can we willing to give that one up because now we have two trademarks that cover the gambit of what we were trying to do successfully. So um, like my next question is, is like, like when you're doing these cons- consultations with someone, like how much time do you usually spend kind of educating them? Because like then your, your YouTube platform is 100% education. Like you, you, all your videos are 100% question structured. So do you think you're more of an educator in that space versus more of a consultant? No, I think we're more in the business, really. I mean, the goal is to obviously sell our services mm-hmm. um, with a positive result, I would say. Mm-hmm. So I try not to file, I would try not to file trademarks that will be refused. Sometimes clients don't get this and they get really upset when we tell them, okay, your trademark is not registrable. Or they start arguing like, well, how is it possible? I, I want to do this. I don't agree with you. And then, well, in this case, I tell them, yes, it's not a problem. We can go ahead and proceed. Just I warn you. So don't be upset when we get a refusal. Uh, I mean, I, I want your money. Yeah, pay me and we'll uh, we'll do our best. But the likelihood of success is less than 50%. So if you're developing a brand now, you're at the very beginning of your journey. Mm-hmm. It's best to rebrand now, cut the losses now, because if you put the money in your brand, in your business, uh invest uh, i mean spend time in marketing and then we get a refusal like one year later uh it, it will be so much uh, more difficult for you because you will lose the money you will lose the time you will have to rebrand and the worst case scenario like what if your trademark is similar to another trademark that has been in use before you started using your trademark so you're looking at potential trademark infringement so it's never a good idea to pick a name that's similar to another trademark, especially when it's so obvious at the beginning and we, we tell our clients, okay, we found this trademark. It's really close and it's, well, it's owned by Microsoft. So don't don't use your trademark. I mean, don't don't file for it. Uh, but sometimes clients say, well, but okay, there's, there is one letter difference. Like our trademark is not the same. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and people don't get that even though it's not the same, it's very similar. So when pronounced, it's the same or when written, it looks almost the same. Uh, so it's all about like likelihood of confusion, like how likely it is that a, pers a person with an imperfect memory uh, like we'll see one brand in a store and then a week later we'll go back to the same store and we'll see the second brand and uh, the, the, like a customer will be confused thinking that he's seen this brand before so it's the same so that's that's the confusion we're talking about and of course if there is one letter difference it's very likely that I mean trademarks will be confused especially if it's like e and i or R, a and o uh and if it's in the middle of the word so it's um it's very likely, but unfortunately, uh, sometimes clients think, okay, if there is one letter difference, I'm good. No, that's definitely not the case. I mean, my experience with trademarks has, has been interesting as well, because we've gotten some letters here and there from someone in a different class that's requesting us to give them access because the trademark office came back and said that the trademark was denied and their name is spelled differently, but phonetically it sounds the same as ours. And mm -hmm. they're in a completely different class and they're trying to rack their brain about it. But that's what the trademark office is there for. So my next question is, is it's, uh, I think you had an article on, in your blog and you were talking about five different ways to kind of leverage a trademark to monetize it. So this kind of goes back to licensing. So how, how does someone license their trademark? I, I have my trademark. Then like, do I, is there a, a resource that I can find people that are willing to license it? Or do I just have to wait till somebody comes and knocks on my door? How does that work? Well, licensing, it's all about like uh, giving somebody else like a permission to use your trademark under license. Uh, so it's it's mostly applicable when you expand. So when you don't want to do the business yourself, but you want other people, uh, like, for example, to set a store. And uh, so they put your brand and they pretty much sell under your brand, but you control the quality. So you make sure that the quality is controlled, like for example, Starbucks, right? I mean, the quality is controlled. Uh, I mean, um, you, the recipes are pretty much the same. So you have to control the quality. You have to uh, obviously check that uh, they comply with your rules. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's how it works. But if you're pretty much, if you're your own boss and you run your own show, I mean, licensing will not, will not be applicable. Hmm. So. Let's just talk about a little bit. Uh, I think the other one was when you sell your company. Mm -hmm. And obviously, it can be a value add. Like right? if, you, if you're doing uh, an evaluation or you're talking about equity, does it pay off to have an established trademark when you're trying to sell a corporation? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that's like one of the reasons to even register the trademark in the first place. Like even if you are not persuaded that it's a, uh, it's a good thing to do. Uh, if you ever plan to sell your business, I think trademarking is the first thing you should do because it does increase the value of the business because mm -hmm. a trademark is an asset. So it's an intangible asset uh, that will definitely uh, pay off. So whatever you invested in the trademark registration uh, will pay off. And I think well, the more the longer you own the trademark, the more valuable it becomes because they don't really expire like patents or mm -hmm. copyrights. Uh, so obviously, I mean, there are some very old trademarks like uh, so it's not like you file a trademark and then 20 years like year, year, 20 years later that's it. So if you uh, if you plan to be in business for like 20 years, you register your trademark and then you sell your business 20 years later. I mean the value of that trademark uh, will be much higher because you have um, accumulated goodwill and reputation over these years. So you have good reviews. So when you when people when a buyer buys, for example, a Boston Cage, they will know okay. 
this is a very good business with good reviews. Uh, so they will come to the new buyer thinking it's the same company. So basically, it doesn't matter who's behind uh, the company because people will trust the brand, people will trust the name. Uh, and that's the, well, that's the goal. Of course, if you register the trademark and you plan to sell it six months later, it will probably increase the value maybe by two, three thousand dollars, but not significantly. Uh, but you will not lose the money. I mean, you will not lose the money uh, on a trademark. Uh, and of course, it makes sense to register a trademark in those countries where you sell or where you plan to do business. So, I mean, I mean, trademarks have been around forever, and right. I mean, obviously, time is unforgiven, and the the words and in, in the languages are not necessarily changing. That uh, there's not a plethora of new words coming into the language, right? So, if someone is looking for trademarks, isn't it getting slimmer and slimmer as time progresses to find those particular trademarks to to, to describe what they're selling or what they're marketing? Yeah, I actually noticed that because uh, it, it it especially. Uh, as Amazon developed and many sellers started uh, going uh, to sell on Amazon, especially when the COVID began, uh, we had like tons of uh, clients coming to us, like trying to find a trademark like in the US, Canada, and everyone wants to find a trademark that consists of a single award and many people want to like register a really short trademark like that consists of less than six letters and that's almost impossible. I noticed that Anything that's shorter than six letters in the U.S. is impossible to get unless it's like a completely created word that doesn't exist. Mm. Uh, but yeah, it, it, it has become increasingly difficult to register a trademark. And for example, if 20 years ago you could file a trademark for computer software, that's it, computer software, and you would get it. But right now you have to describe like who the users are, what the computer software is for. So it has to be like extremely detailed, like is it downloadable or like software as a service? So, so it has to be very, very detailed. And of course, computer software will not be acceptable anymore. So as um, trademark filing increased, uh, of course, the number of available trademarks decreased and also the requirements have become more stringent. So like how you have to describe the products that has also become most, like a stricter and um, you have to be much more detailed now. I mean, it's definitely interesting. I mean, to, to the point, I think another thing, part of your article was about collateral. So you're, you're again, you're talking about a trademark. The longer you have the trademark, the more valuable it is, right? Versus having a brand new trademark that's not been seasoned yet. So how does someone take a trademark and leverage it for collateral? Let's say they go to a bank and saying, hey, I have a trademark. Can I get a loan on that trademark? Like, how, how does that work? Yeah, I don't think it's really... Um... I don't think it's really applicable to like small business owners like taking a loan uh, against the trademark i don't think it will work to be honest mm -hmm. um well i think that the best way is to try to get an, an investor like an independent investor and maybe give him like part of the profits um but obviously what you can do i know you can do like for example in canada you can register like the security against uh, your trademark uh, so it's like a lien, pretty much. So you can't do that, but it's it's extremely uncommon, and it it probably applies more to like larger companies. Hmm. So spinning off of that, I mean, you, part of the article was crowdfunding. So you're saying that obviously you could have a trademark and you can get investors, but another way of getting investors is, is through crowdsourcing or crowdfunding in this case. So how would someone leverage that? Are you doing the same exact principle saying, hey, every, yeah. if you pay us, you can get a fraction or a percentage of the, the royalties of this or how does that work? No, well, no, 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 no. I, I don't think you can do it like this uh, with trademarks. 
because I mean, a trademark has to be owned by somebody, right? Yeah. So it has to have an owner. So you can't have like, um, uh, I don't know, thousand investors all own a trademark, like really, but you can give them like, uh, like a percentage, like, for example, you can send them like merchandise. So invest in uh, my business and you will get this. So you can give them products. Very cool. And last but not least was the uh, co-branding. And I think that's probably the most common use for, for general trademarks is, is when you have two different corporations that are, are working together. So how does that work as far as the, monet the monetization side of things? Yeah, you yeah, know, that's a very good question because, I mean, um, what can happen, you can, uh, two companies can form like a partnership mm -hmm. uh, and basically um, work together and promote each other like for example i have an example uh, i think in that art in that article uh like with the gopro cameras and red bull so obviously it, so you do cross promotion uh and it's a, it's like a tandem uh so companies work together uh and they promote each other and it's it, it's like a synergy so it's, it seems like very organic and people don't even notice that it's promotion mm -hmm. uh and that's basically uh, like what it is um yeah that's very interesting. So let's just talk a little bit more about you. I mean, obviously you have all this information. In your oh, head. another example is like Spotify. Like you go to Starbucks and you can, uh, I think you can buy like a drink and then you get like a free download on Spotify. That's another example. I don't know if they still do that, but I remember they did some time ago. Yeah. So, that, I mean, it's kind of like you're talking about co-branding and yeah. using the light. So it, yeah. makes, it makes sense. Definitely makes sense. So talking about you as, as like, like a kid, I mean, you said that you left um, Moscow at like age of 16. And I'm just listening to you speak. Like I'm asking you these questions unscripted and you're answering them. You're firing them off. So, I mean, you have a <laughs> database of information in your head. I want to know what kind of kid were you growing up? Were you like a kid that would walk around and you had everything memorized or were you more like a note taker? Like imagine what you were like a kid uh i think i was a rebel i mean as far as i remember myself i wanted to go and live uh in an english-speaking country because mm -hmm. when i was born it was still ussr and i was learning english from books i I've never I, I didn't even hear english mm -hmm. so i started learning it was i was uh, like 13 or 14 from books just basically like reading and trying to pronounce the words without even hearing real english and i heard this song a hotel california by, and that song basically just inspired me to learn and leave Russia and go and leave like in a free country. Mm. Because ever since like ever since I was born, I realized that I didn't like it there. Well, mm. it, it's my home country, but I didn't like that it wasn't a free country. Mm. Uh, and I felt that and I wanted to leave. So I was a rebel. So I, I tried to do things my own way. Rules didn't exist for me. I remember uh, like a situation we went to. Um, a museum to look at pictures and paintings and i was really small so we were all standing like in a circle and a guide was talking about some boring painting and i was like behind i couldn't see anything so i just wandered away started looking at other paintings and i was told come back and stand there i said no i don't want to because i don't see anything and i was told to get back in line and i said no i don't want to because i came here to look at paintings but i don't see paintings standing far behind so, and I was, uh, I think about 12. So my teacher told me either you're with us or you go by yourself uh, here, like alone and and go, go go back home all by yourself. And it was like, you have to take underground. So it was quite far away. Uh, and I said, no, I came here to see paintings and that's what I'm going to do. So if you plan to abandon me, that's fine. So she, they just stormed away. Um, 
and the teacher didn't talk to me like for the rest of the year. She was extremely upset that I, well, so, did my own thing, but. Yeah. yeah so you, you're saying you're a rebel, right? So, I mean, like, does that come from someone? I mean, obviously you, you took the journey, you left the country, you've been to other countries over the years, you started a business. Like I said, you're, you're more of a frontier, right? So like, is that coming from like your dad or your mom? Is any one of them or were any grand ancestors a particular entrepreneur that you're learning this this mindset from? No, I didn't have any entrepreneurs in my family, really. Uh, it, like back then, it was pretty much you, you you are born, you get married, you go and work in some boring company, and your life is sad. I mean, it's not exciting. So I just wanted my life to be exciting. I wanted it to be different. Uh, and when I left '93, it was still like extremely difficult to travel. People didn't travel. Uh, so for me to leave, like at that time, like I left um, Russia, like I didn't even finish last year. Um, so it was extremely difficult and it was like uncommon. Uh, but I just didn't want to have uh, like a boring life that's defined like from the moment you're born. I mean, now things change now, like life is interesting. You can, I mean, my kids, I know they can travel, they can be well, like whatever they, they want to be. They have all these choices. Like I didn't have those choices. Like we didn't have internet, I didn't have cell phones. I didn't have like even proper music. Um, so yeah, back then, like life was different uh, and it was like extremely difficult to break out and actually like achieve something because uh, people didn't do that. Hmm. So, I mean, you just brought up your kids and, and, and part of your journey was like, you had to kind of figure out things like when your second son was born and he was working like these long shifts. So how do you currently manage like your work life with your family life? Oh yeah, I try to work. Well, the goal is to work less than six hours a day. Uh, like before it was 12 plus hours a day. Uh, but I learned to delegate. I think the the first thing I learned is to delegate. Don't try to do everything by yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, because I mean, uh, you, you will have no life. So you have to hire people, you have to train them, you have to write like proper manuals, you have to have procedures in place. Uh, you have to have like strategies or like what happens if this happens scenarios. And obviously the longer you are in business, the more you have uh, like situations from which you can learn. Uh, and yeah, I try to work, well, I would say 30 hours a week. Uh, and I think it's been happening like for the past, I think two years, mm -hmm. I think it's been happening. Uh, so yeah, like right now it's manageable. Um, yeah, so I have time for kids, I have time for family, like I have time for travel. So it's, well, now we can travel, yep. thankfully. Well, I think you brought up a really solid point about delegation and, and like, I think you, you're staffed probably like 20 to 30 people right now. I mean, you have lawyers for Australia, Brazil, UK, Jap Japan, all these different regions. So, I mean, it's kind of interesting because usually it's the other way around. Usually there's a law firm and then they mm -hmm. have partners, but essentially you own the company and you're hiring lawyers. So how mm -hmm. does that, how does that, that, that work on the flip side? Cause you know, nine out of 10 times is usually the other way around. Well, it's, you just find good partnerships uh, and you make sure that uh, they agree with your model. Uh, you find somebody uh, who's experienced. I mean, if we're talking about like foreign associates, it's actually, it's uh, it's the same model that other firms, other law firms use. Uh, it's just that we have somebody who we know we can trust and somebody who will do the work like within our timelines and according to our criteria. Like for example, I always insist on like uh, on an initial trademark search to make sure the trademark is registrable uh even if the client doesn't want it we still we still do that because that will that may prevent our client from getting into you know problems later mm -hmm. uh but yeah you just find good partnerships 
uh, and you establish contacts and then uh, you get a good price and then you mark up. I mean, all, all business is the same. You buy buy low and sell high. It's, yeah, yeah. I mean, it it's, it's, it's really simple. It's like trading stocks. You buy low and you sell high. But <laughs> Well, I mean, I think I think it's it's easy when you when you have that state of mind and you know, you're an entrepreneur through and through. But I think earlier on, you you were saying that okay, you learned the English language because you wanted to learn it, and you learned it just by reading books, and you didn't even hear what the English language sound like. So my next question is like, with these general books, I think that particularly today, you may still read books to kind of get a nuance of what you're going to be marketing or how you're going to f figure out how this trademark should go. What books would you recommend? from your early days that you would think that would be very useful to an entrepreneur today? Uh, well, I think Carnegie really influenced me because he is, uh, well, um, re really he is a guy like who explained like how to talk to people. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's probably one of the books. Like I don't read a lot of uh, books right now. Uh, and I don't know why. Um, yeah, obviously Rich Dad, Poor Dad, um but like nowadays i i don't like to read those inspirational books anymore uh i get really tired of them because many of them are really the same uh and what i learned like how i learn i mean i talk to our clients and i'm very curious like when i talk to our clients like i ask like what worked for you what didn't work for you like and so i like to talk to real people learn from them uh, because when you read a book, it's really like distilled um, information uh, and it tells you like about successes, like you don't learn about the failures. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Black Swan was like one of the books that I really enjoyed. I don't remember the author, that it's called The Black Swan. Mm -hmm. uh, that was one of the books I really enjoyed. Uh, but I, mean, I think it's important to learn about people's failures because that's what people don't really talk about and you don't read about that in, in books. You just learn how to be successful. But unfortunately, when you try to duplicate that success, mm -hmm. uh, like word for word, it doesn't happen because you can't really copy paste. You have to bring some creativity. You have to bring some you in this formula to make it work. So to me, it's not just reading the book and saying, OK, that's what I'm going to do. You have to bring some element that's really creative and that's your your story. So you have to bring your story. So that's what I tell clients when they when I tell them, find the trademark that's interesting. Like uh, if you sell vitamins and they're like good for like keto diet, don't call your vitamins like keto green. It's really boring. It's There is no you. Like don't be afraid to uh, get a unique trademark, uh, get creative and then tell your story. I mean, put uh, like your story on the website, tell your clients why you call your trademark like this. Like what's the story behind it? Because people like connections. They like to read interesting stories. I mean, no one like no one likes generic stuff. Hmm. So people like to feel like emotionally connected or somehow connected to you. Like why they should buy from you. I'm just listening to you. And, and I mean, obviously, I, I practice what you preach as far as like a brand specialist. It, it sounds like you're so engulfed in branding as 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 a tool to kind of. Uh, to teach people about trademarking because I mean I would think they're one and the same but like all the terminologies and all the sentence structures that you've been saying are 100% mm -hmm. driven by value propositions about mission statements and understanding the stories behind those particular brands so I, I definitely I, I love what I'm hearing for sure oh that's good that's good yeah, yeah I try um 
Yeah, that's I think one of the reasons why I like I purposely try not to read like just inspirational books because um, what I noticed is that you get influenced in a certain way that like to do things like in a, like in a certain way and sometimes that limits you. Sometimes it limits you. Uh, it limits your creativity. Mm-hmm. So and I think many people nowadays they take like um, coaching lessons and they read cert- they read certain books and they think the more they read, uh, the more they watch the better they will become. And they don't try to do like any exercise uh, themselves. Like they don't, they don't try to do uh, like any like exercise, like creativity, like mm-hmm. like writing, yes, your mission statement, like thinking like, why you're doing this really? Like, why are you doing this? Because I like to just sit down and say, okay, what, am I, what am I going to do today? Like, what am I trying to achieve? Because I mean, days get boring. I mean, all days, I mean, you wake up, you work, you go to bed. I mean, it's all the same. So it's important to um, to bring some um, spice in your life, okay. to you know uh, put things you know upside down, uh, do something different, um, you know make your life interesting. Okay. Uh, and and I think the more you like the more podcasts you watch, like in, in educational podcasts uh, where people talk about success and what to do, like morning routines. I mean they're all very much the same. You watch 10 of them, you know what to do. You just have to apply it. Mm. I think that like many people's problem is that they don't really want to work on themselves. They're lazy. They don't want to apply things. They just want to read something. You know, you pay money, you get a course, you kind of watch it, and then suddenly you know what to do. But it doesn't happen that way. I mean, you have to go through this experience. You have to actually digest that. Mm. And you have to come up with something that's like really you. Mm. So, I mean, with that, right, I mean, obviously earlier on you were talking about buying low and and selling high, and obviously you're you're a real big component of being reasonably priced when it comes down to, like, trademarks. So, Mm -hmm. and obviously, like, most lawyers probably would not agree with that statement. It was kind of like it's it's something that's legal, and by default, it's a premium. So I want to talk about, like, like, how did you come up with, like, your pricing convention and your pricing packages that allows you to have room for margins also pay your 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 partners and pay your employees and also get the results that the clients are looking for yeah yeah when i uh well before i opened the company i um approached about like 50 law firms and like trademark registration agencies just to look at their structure so i obviously didn't want to like i was very afraid that i would fail when i before i started so i was very afraid that no one will buy and i would have no clients so i didn't want to put like a very high price uh, so I looked at like what others charge and um, I priced it well at the beginning I priced it really low so it was the prices were lower I had like a package for like $500 pretty much everything is included uh, absolutely everything and of course I had lots of clients very quickly and I was a bit overwhelmed mm-hmm. uh, so I think during the first six months I had like I don't know maybe 100 clients so very quickly because the price was really low uh, but I also got a lot of clients who thought that just because I, I just began, they can kind of exploit me. So then I raised the prices uh, quickly, uh, but I still kept them, I would say, lower than like middle priced uh, firms. So it's still uh, on the lower side because we want to make our prices affordable uh, to new businesses, to Amazon sellers who just begin to sell on Amazon. That's our target market. People who sell on Amazon, uh, you know, people who want to start a new career, like selling from home or like doing their business from home, uh, maybe like single mothers or just, you know, um, 
people who quit their full-time job and they want to try their luck on Amazon or maybe like eBay or Etsy or Shopify, like all those platforms mm -hmm. and they need a trademark. So obviously it has to be affordable for them. <laughs> so that's uh, how, I mean, we have to price uh, our packages um, so that it, our clients can afford them. So, I mean, you just, you just kind of like outline like your ideal avatar. So let's say they're listening to this podcast right now and they're starting FBA on Amazon or maybe they're trying to do something in Walmart. What words of wisdom would you like them to, to heed to? Like you said earlier, take action on what they're learning. What tips are you going to give them right now to help them to move forward with getting their trademarks? Yeah, I think it's important. Yeah, I think I could sell on Amazon myself because I know so much about selling on Amazon, but I don't sell myself. I think there will be a conflict if I did. Uh, I think it's really important to write a business plan. I know it sounds really boring, but uh, not a business plan, okay? Those are the chapters and it looks really pretty, but just think, okay, uh, what am I saying? Like, what am I doing? Like, who my clients are? Uh, what I find, like, when I um, talk to clients and I ask them and they say, okay, I need a trademark. And I ask them, where do you want to register your trademark? And they're like, oh, I don't know. I'm asking them, like, uh, like, where do you plan to sell? And many of them don't know. And that's, like, so basic. Like, so do your research. Like, think, who is your ideal customer is? Like, where, where are you going to sell? Like, to what countries you're going to sell? Like, do you need any capital? Like, how are you going to get it? Uh, like, get the domain name. That's the first thing I would do. Get the domain name. Uh, obviously find a, like a brand a trademark name and as soon as you find something that you like get the domain name get social media handles before somebody snatches them it happens a lot and then uh, do your research for the trademark to make sure it's available and then file the trademark so as soon as you have as you have realized that okay that's the name that you like for business uh register the trademark i mean don't wait to see how the business is going to go because very often what happens Clients delay, the business goes well, and then somebody else sees their success and files for their trademark. It's been happening a lot. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, um, clients, well, people tend to forget, they procrastinate, they like to uh, postpone things they don't like to do or they don't understand or things that require payment. And unfortunately, like trademarks is like one of those things that you don't really need legally, so you can postpone them. Uh, and if you postpone for too long, I mean, you may end up, uh, well, losing your trademark to somebody else mm -hmm. uh somebody else may file for your trademark and then um you will either have to rebrand or you will have to file an opposition to get it back well in either case it will be extremely expensive uh so i think those things like uh like incorporate a company uh well do the research see if it's feasible for you to incorporate like uh check on the form of like i go to form an llc or corporation uh find an accountant so in, invest in these basic things, like think about like software you're going to use, like uh, buy it. So uh, sometimes people come unprepared or they think they can start the business like uh, on a shoestring, like really, really cheaply and they don't have enough funds. Uh, and that's obviously like recipe for disaster. You have to have some funds, you know, maybe for six months at least, uh, so that you, you invest in these basic things. Interesting. Uh, yeah. So to me, that's that's really important. Like because when I started the business, I was uh, like I was working uh, in another company part time. So to me, for me, it was gradual. So I I discussed with my previous employer that I was going to become a freelancer. Mm -hmm. 
yeah. uh, instead of an employee. And I told I told him that I was going to open my own company. Uh, but it, it was gradual, and for me, that that's why it wasn't like so scary, mm. even though it, it was still scary. Uh, but I had like um, my other income, so it was like um, like emotionally it was easier. But when you quit, like if you quit a job and then suddenly you decide to sell on Amazon uh, and you don't know anything about that, and you compete with other sellers, I mean, it can be difficult. It has become a very challenging like space. So how does someone get in contact with you? I mean, obviously you have social media, you have a website. What's what's the fastest and most convenient way for them to contact you? Yeah, so uh, go to our website, trademarkangel.com, uh, fill a form for like a free trademark search if you need a trademark or there is like a place to book a free consultation uh, or they can call us at 226-246-2979. Uh, that's the easiest way. We don't charge for like initial trademark searches. We don't charge for uh, like the first consultation. They actually don't charge for consultations. Mm-hmm. I don't like charging people uh, on a like a hourly basis. Just not my thing. So we try to um, do everything on a flat fee basis so that the budget is predictable, uh, and we try to evaluate the like the results, like the outcome of the trademark registration, like beforehand so that the chances are more than 50 percent at least uh so yeah th- that's the best way hmm. so i mean i mean with that i mean obviously you're, you're doing the consultations and let's say someone already has a trademark right let's say they have mm-hmm. the trademark for the u.s and like what's the procedures or the next step if they wanted to expand that trademark from the u.s to just say the uk or to australia uh, yeah, so we can file a trademark like in those countries. But I think again, uh, like you have to like get your data, see where your sales are coming from. Like, do you need a trademark in the UK? Like very often when I ask people uh, basic questions, they don't know the answers because they don't know their statistics. I ask them like, where do you where do your clients come from? Like from what countries? And people don't know. Or they say, okay, US, like where else? Why do you want to register in the UK? Like, what's the reason for that? You have to have a reason. Do you plan to expand to the UK? Mm-hmm. Do you have customers from the UK? Do you ship to the UK? Uh, I mean, obviously, we can just file a trademark, I don't know, in some uh, in, in the UK, but you may not need it. So only file trademarks in those countries where you plan to expand, where you plan to sell, uh, in those countries that uh, may be interesting to you in the future. Um, but yeah, I would say like US, Canada, European Union, UK are like very, very popular um, jurisdictions, obviously, uh, especially for Amazon sellers or like for entrepreneurs, um, all English speaking countries. But now we also file a lot in China and like Japan and South Korea and United Arab Emirates. So those are all hot countries right now. Very cool. So this leads me to talk a bonus question. Um, if you could spend 24 hours with anyone, that person could be dead or alive, uninterrupted for those 24 hours, who would it be and why? Oh, it would be my husband. Pretty easy. Okay, is it, does it count? Yeah, yeah, it counts. Why? Why, why would you spend 24 hours? Well, because I love him. He is interesting. Uh, we always have fun. I mean, he uh, helps me. Uh, and we, just because we don't, we don't spend enough time together. Mm. We're always busy. I know I said I try to work like 30 hours, but still we're busy with kids, with like renovations, with other things, you know, daily things. Uh, and of course, when you have three kids, uh, you don't get a lot of one-on-one time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that would be my husband. Okay, 
Okay. Sorry, kids. <laughs> Another <laughs> bonus question for you. Like what tools or software that you use on a day-to-day -day basis that you would not be able to do what you do without having access to? Yeah. Yeah. I use uh, HubStuff for time tracking. Well, for my um, freelancers, for my employees. Uh, not I use, they use. We also use Asana for assigning tasks. And it's actually, it's really cool because it's free up to 15 users. So it's um, it's really cool. And for CRM, we use Pipedrive. Uh, so that's a really cool uh, software to keep track of your leads, your prospects, your clients, and it's very easy to use. So I would say, and uh, yeah, Acuity Scheduling, that's what I use to okay. schedule calls. But yeah, I would say um, HubStuff, Asana, and Pipedrive are my favorite ones. Really cool, really cool. So in closing of the podcast, I always like to give the opportunity to whoever I'm interviewing to become the host of my show. So I'm giving you the ownership of the oh. Cage podcast and you're going to interview me. Do you have any questions that you have? Uh, yeah, the only question I have is how did you come up with your name? I mean, because that's probably like one of the most interesting uh, brand names. Um, yeah, so tell yes. me. So it was... Um, well, I've always been into branding. I've always been into like design and development. So it was just mm -hmm. kind of one of those things. Um, back in 2018, I had a stroke. And as I came out of the stroke, I was trying to figure out like, how, what, what was I going to do next? And mm -hmm. I had got the advice from my girlfriend, who's my wife right now, to tell me to kind of brand myself and step out into the light, step from behind the curtain. And so that was the first part of me. OK, well, being uncaged. Right. And then mm. obviously I'm working with people that are self-defined as bosses, whether they're entrepreneurs or they're business owners or they're founders or mm -hmm. their executive levels. So and then I was just trying to do I was doing a bunch of research to kind of figure out the word common and I wanted a really short word, like you said before, boss is phonetically could be spelled globally on any scale. It's just four yeah. letters and then uncage is pretty easy as well. And I just kept playing with these different words. I had like this document with all these different words. And finally, I kind of made it down to five and then those five became three. And then I was like, OK, is it uncaged boss or is it boss uncaged? And I was like, lead off with the people you're talking to first, boss, and lead off with the functionality of these people wanting to mm -hmm. become unca uncaged. Whether they live in corporate America and they're looking to become entrepreneurs, there's always an opportunity for someone to go from being a boss and being completely free. So that's how yeah. I love it. I love it. I mean, that's exactly, that's probably how I felt too. I like the, the name uncaged yeah I li and i like that it's boss first and then i uncaged and then it goes back to just doing research it's like action really yeah boss uncaged yep yep and the fact that to your point i i've done websites before in my time so i went and got the domain name i went and got all the social media profiles mm -hmm went and got the trademark and it's always funny because people are like how the hell did i get it and i was like well it's just the wordplay of combination of these two words and nobody else thought about it before i did so yeah no and it's uh it's a very cool uh trademark name too it's not boring it's kind of makes your imagination go and trying to imagine like what's behind this uh so yeah it's a very it's a very good one well i definitely appreciate it any other last questions so how long have you been um uh, doing this the podcast so I've been 2018? No, actually, I started podcasting in February 2020. And I, I've oh, been okay. doing like marketing and all the other stuff since 2000. But, you know, until mm -hmm. 2020s, when I was like, okay, what am I going to do? Am I going to become a YouTuber or am I going to become a podcaster? And I did some research and I was like, yeah, hey, we start this podcasting. And I started February and then March, everything shut down because of COVID. So I couldn't have started it at a 
better time and the rest yeah that was a good time so are you an introvert or an extrovert I would say I was always an introvert for the longest. That's what I thought, but I saw it's uh, yeah, but been difficult. Transitionally, it was, but now it's it's easy. I mean, I talk to so many different people on an ongoing basis, and I network all the time. So now I can walk into a room and the spotlight could be on me, and I embrace it. Versus before, I was a guy in the corner of the room. So. Again, I think it's a habit. Help me come out the cage. I'm, I'm living. I'm a living example of the title. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, well, it's all it's all habit. Like when I um, talk to clients, like my first sales calls, like my hands sweated and I was like literally shaking inside. But then slowly you get used to this. So I think, um, well, it's um, yeah. But to me, like speaking with somebody like this would be unimaginable. Like five years ago, I think. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially we just met for the first time, but I mean, I, I love doing this podcast because it gives us the opportunity to communicate. We build this this bond. We yeah. get to talk about so many different things and and so common common denominators the information. So it definitely works. Absolutely. That's why I like I like these things more than like reading books, yeah. uh, because you get some information that is not distilled and it's maybe somebody else's experience that you can apply to yourself, or maybe you can get some like even if. No, our listeners can get can get like one useful bit of information that's good. Yeah, yeah, they can I, apply. I think, I think you delivered more than one. You delivered dozens on this particular episode. So I just want to say, you know, thank you. I definitely appreciate the information that you brought to the table. You gave us so much insight about international IP that most people probably wouldn't even understand or comprehend or even know where to start finding that information. Oh, we just scratched the surface there. <laughs> yeah, we did. We did. But to your point, it's taking action. It's small steps, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, just don't be afraid and take action. And uh, if you don't try, you'll never succeed. Great, great. Well, I definitely, definitely appreciate you being on the show today. Yeah, thank you. Bye-bye, everyone. All right, S.A. Grant, over and out. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Boss Uncaged. I hope you got some helpful insight and clarity to the diverse approach on your journey to becoming an Uncaged Trailblazer. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review and share the podcast. If this podcast has helped you or you have any additional questions, reach out and let me know. Email me at ask at sagrant.com or drop me your thoughts via a call or text at 762-233-BOSS. That's 762-233-2677. I would love to hear from you. Remember, to become a boss in cage, you have to release your inner beast. S.A. Grant, signing off. Listeners of Boss in Cage are invited to download a free copy of our host, S.A. Grant's insightful ebook, Become an Uncaged Trailblazer. Learn how to release your primal success in 15 minutes a day. Download now at www.bossuncaged.com forward slash free book.